Welcome to Therapeutic Perspective. My name is Sarah Dynan, and I will be your host. Each episode, our goal is to educate clinicians on current issues presented in society and feature specialists that can help us to navigate these issues. As a licensed professional counselor in private practice in Northeast Pennsylvania, with over a decade in the field, I am always wanting to learn more to better serve my clients. Especially as things in society evolve and change, I believe we need better access to current information. Therapeutic Perspective is a continuing education provider, so stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you can obtain NBCC continuing education credit hours for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome to episode eight of Therapeutic Perspective. I am your host, Sarah Dynan, and today our mission is to bring to you a beginner's guide to rational emotive behavioral therapy. REBT is the pioneering form of cognitive behavioral therapy developed by Dr. Albert Ellis in 1955. Today, we have with us clinician Emily Remo, who specializes and holds a certification in REBT. She is going to talk with us about the basics of REBT as well as practical implications. This is going to be a great review for those who are familiar with REBT or it can be an entry-level introduction into REBT for those of you who have heard it but have no training in it. This is actually a two-part podcast. In the second part, Emily is also going to talk with us about some effective tips for telehealth as it relates to family therapy. Family therapy can be such a challenge as telehealth can complicate our communication greatly when more than one client is in session. Emily comes to therapeutic perspective with an abundance of experience. She has worked in both inpatient and outpatient treatment settings, providing clinical services for an array of mental health and dual diagnosis issues. She is presently a clinician, clinician in private practice at Harrow Counseling and Associates in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. There, she specializes in grief counseling and treats those struggling with anxiety, depression, and attachment issues. She is a graduate of the Delaware Valley University Master's Program in Counseling Psychology. Um, so without further ado, welcome to the show, Emily. Well, thank you, Sarah, for inviting me and let me jump in on this episode. And thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. So we're going to dive right into it. So can you start off by giving us an overview of the basics of REBT? Yes. Okay. Where to, where to start here? <laughs> um, so REBT, it stands for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. To break it down a little further, um, we have R. So rational, that is our overall goal for the therapy is to really kind of change our thinking into more um, realistic and helpful ways of kind of uh, functioning throughout the day. Because a lot of the times our brains can just be telling us what to do all day long, thousands of thoughts. And not all of those thoughts can be true. Not all of those thoughts can even be helpful. They can actually be hurtful. So we really want to challenge them. Um, so then it goes to E, uh, emotive, the emotions that get brought up from those thoughts. B, behaviors, uh, the actions that are created from those feelings. And then T, therapy, uh, the system that we take to improve ourselves and I guess essentially what this podcast is all about. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah. it, it, you kind of, even the acronym, it kind of just breaks it down into the really whole does. concept of REBT. Yes. Yes. 
And as you were kind of going through it, so I'm predominantly cognitive behavioral therapy. Like I, I've okay. done most of the, um, the Beck trainings from the Institute. Um, and I consider myself a cognitive behavioral therapist. That's my primary discipline. And so I hear some of the overlap. Um, can you explain to us how the two theories differ? Okay. So that is a good question because I too find how it overlaps a lot. I know both really do aim again to change that thinking pattern and those behaviors. Um, and they're both very common to use and both very effective, I feel. Um, the main difference I think would be just in the overall approach they take. So two kind of differing models. Um, so CBT can kind of um, focus a lot on kind of changing the interpretation someone might kind of focus on for an event that happened. Um, and really the CBT therapist teaching new ways to challenge maladaptive thoughts. I know a lot of it has to be with um, questioning all or nothing thinking, kind of jumping to conclusions and uh, really navigating with the client to come up with new interpretations and new um, conclusions that are more maybe beneficial to their self-esteem. Yes. And so I think like what I hear you saying is um, you're describing like cognitive distortions and Correct. cognitive behavioral therapy. We look at like some of those cognitive distortions, like mind reading, overgeneralizations, yes. um, and the list can kind of go on and on. And then you work on reframing those cognitive distortions. 100%. Um, yes. So keep going. Explain to us more about how they differ. Um, so in contrast with RABT, it really does focus on that um, underlying behavior, or excuse me, belief. Mm -hmm. That way we can shift the thoughts from irrational to rational thinking. So the therapist actually, I feel, takes a little more of a directive and um, confrontive role. That way we can kind of come to a more um, self-acceptance piece for the client. Um, to kind of give an example, I recently did have a client that actually had a little Zoom date for the first time, and he immediately jumped into session saying, it went awful, um, she wasn't interested, she wasn't talking a lot, she didn't smile that much, so we broke it down, but um, with CBT, I feel like they might go a little more on the positive route. So, okay, well, let's look at this. Um, maybe you made this assumption based off like what you mentioned, the cognitive distortion mm -hmm. or mind reading. Right? Yes. So, okay, maybe you're coming to the assumption saying those behaviors happen, but you don't know what's on her mind. Yes, right? this is if exactly what I'd be saying. I'd be yes. like, I hear a lot of cognitive distortions. I hear your overgeneralizations. Right. Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so you're with me here. Uh huh. Okay, so we have that kind of distortion. So, how do we make this a little more positive, right? You or someone else in the CBT field might be like, okay, um, we'll go the way of, well, maybe she was nervous, right? It's a new situation. It's a different way of meeting, and if we go on a second date, maybe we'll become more comfortable and get to know each other more. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now. REBT, on the other hand, might look at, okay, what is the underlying uh, belief here? So I explored with him his fear of rejection, 
right? Mm -hmm. And with that concept, he was able to verbalize the belief of, well, I really need her to accept me or I'm just gonna feel awful. I'll feel like a loser. And those are pretty powerful statements to tell yourself. So um, with exploring that, it's okay. um, Well, how are we kind of treating ourselves with this? And again, taking the rational beliefs to make it more rational, what can we tell ourselves? That's a little more uplifting, right? So changing it to, I really want her to accept me, but I know not everyone will like me and that's okay. Okay. Yes. So soften the blow a little bit, soften the fear of rejection. So not only can he use this for this situation, but also in the future, whenever he might feel that. In the future, going forward. And it's kind of moving the client from putting so much weight on one circumstance, it sounds like. Is that right? Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it kind of moves him to this, the underlying fear of what's under it. Like you said, this fear of rejection, this need to be accepted by her and kind of broadening it to say, you know what, it's not everybody's going to, to accept me and I don't need her to accept me. So rash, the rational part of you is trying to explore that thought process. Is that right with, the, with REBT? Yes, you want to make it a little more reasonable with yourself here. So. Okay. So much of like CBT is teaching the client about CBT. So when I'm talking with a client, um, I try to ask them, I say, okay, so I hear a lot of cognitive distortions. What do you hear in your thoughts? And so it's a lot of training them to then take these skills and use it outside of our individual therapeutic setting. And so that they can understand a lot about how the process works. It's really focused in on teaching the client the process. And I hear that a lot of REBT. And am I accurate in that? Oh, goodness. 100%. Okay. I feel like a lot of clinicians can kind of relate to the fact that we can preach to the client until we're blue in the face, but it's really them who has to take the information and practice outside of the session. So um, I find REBT such an important education piece. So they understand the process as well. Okay, so it's kind of just as much in that in that facet of educating them so that they're not feeling like they can only do work in session, but to kind of help translate that work outside of sessions and they can work through their cognitions independently. Yes, 100%. Um, you know, formally cognitive behavioral therapy use the term homework. I know now they, they move in the direction of more of saying action plan to kind of replace that. <laughs> maybe negative connotation that comes with homework. I don't know what their reasoning was, but um, do you have like outside tasks with REBT? Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you asked that and you mentioned the piece of homework because I too have seemed to stray away from it because a lot of like um, the younger clients, especially teens, when they hear the word homework, they just want to run and they give me the same like scared face. Um, so I might just say, all right, I have a little challenge for here, challenge for you here. We can work through. Um, but really, uh, with REBT, I like to use visuals so they can really have it crystallized. We work through the process together and they have the tools. Something I like to use, um, even with virtual now, I might just email it, um, but handouts. So working through it and they get to understand 
where I'm coming from and I'm not just pulling it out of thin air here and they get to go on the same journey with me. Um, I know ironically that you asked this question within the past couple weeks, I have two clients that mentioned they appreciated uh, the education piece. So last week, new client, mid thirties, she mentioned struggling with like crippling anxiety. She just needed to perform her ultimate best at work or else the quote people pleaser in her will just be a failure. Mm -hmm. So big REBT work. So I didn't go too much into detail with her in that initial session, but I did mention "Mm, this throws like a red flag to me that you might benefit from this type of approach. And she, at the end of the session mentioned, wow, I've had two previous therapists and I've never heard any type of method that they were using. So I really do appreciate that. It's like, oh, well, there you go. There you go. I and that I, feedback. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think even just like, I think it's so important to kind of mention to clients, like what exactly, what form of therapy that you're doing because of that. So yeah. they feel like yes. there's some direction. And so I find that like a lot of my clients will even then go home and like research it to educate themselves, which is a beautiful thing because they're kind of taking, they're, they're taking what they've learned in session outside and they're reflecting on it, which is so important. Um, oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And so sometimes I, love the research. I do too. I do too. I love when they can kind of, and when they can use the terminology and I can use the terminology, cognitive distortions, reframing, um, overgeneralizations. Um, you know, it's not particularly like difficult language to comprehend, but just so that we can kind of communicate and do therapy on the same page. Um, so I like what you're saying is like, you have, you, you like to have like a visual representation of what you're doing in therapy and having that take home assignment or however you frame it. So nobody gets freaked out um, approach to it. Exactly. One thing, like I'm thinking back to like my initial like education on REBT um, is Albert Ellis's ABCs, you know, activating events, beliefs, and consequences. Can you walk up our listeners through how you apply these ABCs in session? Sure. So good question, because I feel like the ABCs are definitely a popular approach. Yes. Um, So with uh, trying to get a ticket into the REBT techniques, it really is once I hear a segue of irrational beliefs, I'll take it and run. So a couple examples might be, client saying, I'm, I know these thoughts are irrational, but X, Y, and Z. So then I, I hit the brakes. I'm like, whoa, okay, let's rewind a little. Where do you throw these beliefs? Do you do anything with them? And they'll say, no, I'm, I just know they're irrational. It's like, hmm, okay. They'll talk a little more. And then in comes the kind of extreme and exaggerated terms of must, should, never, always, forever, I need to, I have to. And that's a lot on you, right? Yeah. Um, And again, those other um, unreasonable statements I might hear is, um, they have to like me or I'm just a complete failure. I should feel this way, but I'm not happy at all. Um, Or if I can't do this, then there's something wrong with me type deal. And 
after I hear those, then I'll just flat out say, okay, well, it looks like we have to kind of learn our ABCs today. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's a good segue into the process because they themselves notice how hard they can be in their minds. So when you say to them, okay, let's learn our ABCs today, how would you help them? This is me using cognitive behavioral terms, like reframe that for their, or reinterpret that for themselves. Yeah. So again, I might use that visual, um, again, either a handout or writing it out for them or emailing them. Um, what is the ABC? So education piece, the letters A through E. Starting off with the letter A, we have um, activating event. So this ultimately is something that's happened or is about to happen. So the letter B, beliefs. This is the big, big one. Um, really, what are you telling yourself? Okay. Right. Letter C, consequences or the emotional reactions that are coming up for you. The letter D, dispute. Um, really kind of challenging those upsetting and unrealistic thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. And then E, the last one is effect. So the end result of having modified those beliefs, right? And so if I just flat out told my clients that A through E, they probably would have been like, whoa, 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 like that's a lot, right? So again, I might give them that education piece, but then I want to go over it a second time and slow it down a little and break it down with them. Okay. Right? And um, at this point, I'll ask them, hey, if you can put in an example of your perception, we can break it down and um, I'm gonna give you just a couple instructions throughout, right? And for any listeners who's listening to this, it's helpful to do it right now. Um, so we'll start with A again. So think of a time that uh, something came up for you, a situation, that activating event, right? What is happening, okay? Mm -hmm. Step two, we're gonna skip down to letter C, the okay. emotional reaction, the consequences. So, Really, we skip down to C because many times we'll experience something and then just immediately feel the feelings, right? Right, it's, right. Oh, my spouse made me so mad. I'm just going to be angry and fume. So it's, whoa, okay. What about step three, the belief? What were you telling yourself? Mm -hmm. This is the hidden gem. This is what usually gets swept under the rug, not really dealt with. So really pinpoint what are you saying to yourself in your mind, right? Um, then D, the big REBT piece, which is to dispute. We want to um, learn to question ourselves and really learn to challenge what's going on in our minds. So again, I might send them a list of challenging questions, right? So maybe, um, am I confusing habit with a fact? Am I confusing feelings with facts. What are the evidence for this, right? And then E, the effect, we really want to come to a new, more empowering um, perspective for the situation. Okay, okay. And what I like to hear there is I often tell my clients, okay, let's, when you talk about the D, it's oftentimes I say, okay, let's put that up to the jury. Like, what evidence do you have to support this? Let's play um, lawyer in our own mind and present your case with, with evidence. Um, can you walk me through, let's do like a case study. And I'm going to say, 
say I am, you use the example of your husband, like a husband in that situation, say my spouse um, did not unload the dishwasher, okay? And I'm fuming. I'm like so mad that he did not unload the dishwasher. Um, I, I unload, unload the dishwasher every morning. You know, he was up first. He could have unloaded the dishwasher. Walk me through how we would go through the, the ABCs. Of course. Okay. That is a good example. <laughs> so, okay. All of a sudden the situation comes up of the dishes. So that is what you would write out for A. Okay. Right. So let's skip down to C, the consequences. How are you feeling in that situation? I'm frustrated because I feel like it's always me doing all the, the housework and the chores. Mm, okay, beautiful. Yes. So you would write out frustrated, maybe with a couple exclamation marks here. Yes. Now, B, we'll write out the beliefs. You just had a good example of your belief of I always do it. I always have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. to, so start off with that. I always have to do the dishes, right? Mm -hmm. What other beliefs might come up for you in that scenario? That I'm not appreciated, that um, it's, it's just automatic, like it's, it's assumed to be my responsibility. Mm. Mm hmm Okay, good. So now we'll go down to step four, dispute. Uh -huh. We want to dispute those upsetting beliefs because clearly it's making you very frustrated and you don't want to be in this state of mind. Mm -hmm. So we ask ourselves some challenging questions. Are we using ex exaggerated or extreme terms like never, always, forever? Mm -hmm. I think so. I always have to do it. I hear them in my, in my complaint. Yes. Okay. And so let's work on, okay, what is the evidence to support that idea? Okay. So I might say, well, I, I had to unload it yesterday and I had to unload it the day before. Um, and it's just, it's always like that, that that would kind of support. And I, he never appreciates it. He never says, oh, you unloaded the dishwasher day. He never gives me any credit for it. Okay. All right. And so if we catch ourselves to um, say, are we using those extreme or exaggerated terms? We can again see that it's still titrating through your mm -hmm. mind right now. So you went from always to now never, always, always, always never. And that can be so much on our mind. So again, we're still going to work to challenge ourselves here. So is it a fact 100% of the time that you are always responsible of the dishes and he has never once done the dishes. Well, you know, he does do the hand washing, like of the like greasy pans that I just, you know, kind of leave soaking in the sink. He does do the heavy dishwashing. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So it looks like we're kind of swaying a little to, well, maybe he does sometimes help. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice. We're moving in that direction. Maybe he's not so bad. Okay. So again, well, my client and I would typically in this scenario, again, keep trying to dispute, keep trying okay. to challenge. That way it's not as much of a end all be all, right? Yes. Yes. So I can kind of, it's almost like releasing that, that need to kind of put it all on him that he never does it, but giving like my energy a break to focusing on that and kind of looking at the bigger picture to say he does actually do 
does the heavy pans or the the gross pans that sit in the sink. And really to kind of not put it all on yourself too. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure of, I always, always have to do X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. And then how do we bring it down to the E, the effect? Yeah. So E, the effect, we're going to create a new statement that's more empowering and a more helpful perspective. So if we've learned that we're going to ex-nay those exaggerated terms and we want to move towards a more realistic, rational thought, what's something a little more empowering that we can tell ourselves to get us through this mood? I think I could say you know what, here I am unloading the dishwasher again for the third day, but you know, I know that throughout the day, the hand washing, the dishes in the sink, that he'll do. And that's super helpful to me. So I don't always feel like I'm in the kitchen doing dishes, but you know, he does help. He does try to help. He does pitch in a bit. Beautiful. Yes, that is a great example, 100%. And it's really moving towards a more um, solution-focused mm-hmm. perspective, right? Because if we get stuck in the cycle of, I always have to do this, and then again, that's end-all, be-all. We don't want that. Yes. It is, it is. So then you kind of notice the that change kind of starting to take place at that point. Right. And so again, purposely picking out what can my new perspective be because I want to kind of change my focus to change my mood, right? We don't want to be stuck in that frustration. So we'll change our focus to, okay, well, maybe he does help out in certain areas. Yes. And to kind of allows us to look at the bigger, bigger picture and to change our focus and where our thoughts are, are honing in on. Yes. Right. Good. Like that, I like dibs, and it's it's all things that aren't like foreign to Correct. to somebody like lights, dibs, and ABCs. Like they're oh. common. You're not inputting anything foreign into their <laughs> mindset to remember and to hang on to. Yeah. Um, and if any of our listeners would like to become certified in REBT, can you give us some insight into the path that they might take, or tell us a little bit about the path you took? course. So the path I took and what I would recommend 100% is actually going through um, the Albert Ellis Institute for certification. Um, It really does provide uh, kind of like small group supervision. That way you get that immediate feedback. And I really liked it just because like that's the reason why I went to my graduate school at DelVal because they had such a smaller setting and um, they were able to give me all that positive feedback and that um, constructive support. So with um, the Institute, I did get a notification recently that they're actually doing it remotely. So you don't even have to go in person. Don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure they're still doing it because of COVID guidelines. So I definitely would recommend checking that out. And um, if you are more interested in how to apply REBT or more strategies, definitely take the training for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the one thing too, is I feel like um, since the pandemic hit, it's made a lot of these resources actually more accessible to to all clinicians. You have a farther reach with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I noticed um, actually when the pandemic hit, I 
I've found myself doing more um, courses and training, so it is convenient and I don't have to travel. Yes, absolutely. Good, good. Um, So for the second part of the show, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we're also going to pick Emily's brain about telehealth for family therapy. So um, that about wraps us up for the REBT portion of our show. Um, And we're going to use this last 20 minutes or so to talk about doing family therapy through telehealth. I think there's already, we've experienced some challenges with moving to telehealth because of the hiccups with technology and finding an appropriate Mm -hmm. platform. Um, And I think having family involved or, or couples counseling involved, like more than one person through telehealth can be challenging. Um, Can you walk us through some of the barriers that you've hit through doing family therapy in this format or couples therapy in this format? Right, yeah. So um, with family therapy, it's an adjustment um, for anybody really for the virtual world. And like you said, that technology piece, sometimes the connection can be poor, something happens, but I've learned to kind of embrace that initial discomfort and awkwardness and just kind of make light of it. Like, Hey, like this probably is going to happen a little more than just this one time. Um, another piece I've noticed with family therapy, a lot of the younger kids, if they're kind of resistant, they don't really want to be there, get, they're getting frustrated. They kind of have an easier way to hide. So they might poke their heads out of the camera. They might turn their device off. So I've kind of learned to, in the beginning, initiate the conversation of, hey, so sometimes our uh, emotions might get a little heated here, and it's best to take a break for maybe two minutes, take a walk, and come back. I encourage you to come back when you're a little calmer, and we'll go from there, rather than them just disappearing (laughs) entirely. Yeah. So I can kind of see, like, actually one of the benefits of telehealth being, especially in family sessions, as things would get maybe a little bit more heated, is they can actually feel comfortable where they're going for a walk, where if they're in our session and we say, hey, you can go take a breather, go for a walk, they might be a little bit unfamiliar with the setup or the location of our office, but there they can kind of go for a walk or use some of their coping strategies like within their home. Exactly, yes. Um, so we can kind of gauge the situation, that way they can enjoy and be a little more comfortable being home. However, on the flip side, a lot of people um, are burnt out with this screen time. Okay. And I completely can relate to that as a clinician with telehealth. Uh-huh. So again, navigating and seeing where they're at. If they need a break, we can certainly take a break. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's been the hardest part as, as time has gone on. There's more and more telehealth that are... Um, everybody has been exposed to, you know, you can go to your primary care doctor through telehealth. You can go to um, a religious service via telehealth. You're obviously, we're doing school via telehealth. Like it's like everything is um, increased our screen time for every individual's facet, not just us clinicians who are using telehealth, but everybody is a little bit more telehealth in their life, um, professional workplaces and meetings. And so some people just might be burnt out by the screen time and, and that's okay. Giving them that space like, hey, you, you might need that break and, and that's okay. We can resume at a later date. Right, definitely. And even just planning out um, time after the session, I know some of my colleagues have mentioned how they've struggled because 
some of their um, kind of de-stressing time is the car ride home from their offices. And it's, well, now we're still stuck in the house and the phone's there, the computer's there. So really breaking it down, not only for the clinicians of, hey, maybe you should kind of down, um, put the technology down for a little after a session or just plan something out just to de-stress. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. I totally remember that, um, especially like after an intense session, just that, that drive kind of, you can allow it to like put your thoughts down on the highway, right? Like you get it all out, you can kind of de-stress and leave it all on the highway wherever your commute is from home. But as clinicians, we don't necessarily have that anymore because our offices yeah. are right in our home. So kind of as clinicians coming up with strategies so that we're, we can do some burnout prevention so we don't because obviously telehealth isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So um, doing some things to help us, you know, decompress a little bit after our sessions. Um, when it comes to doing family therapy online, is it better to have like everybody on like one screen or I envision, or is it better to do like Brady Bunch style where everybody kind of has their own screen? Um, what do you feel like has been most helpful or most effective? Yeah. So I feel um, the most effective way is to let them pick. Okay. So maybe we'll start out with their pick, but then we might notice, oh, we're all trying to fit on this one camera. It's not really working. Maybe we can divvy it up here, but really I want them to kind of have that control of, all right, what are you more comfortable with here? Yes. See, is that working, right? Just test it out. Yeah. So can maybe kind of trying to... Um you know, give them the option, try to troubleshoot maybe both ways if they're uncertain to see which one's the most effective um, in, in doing it. And how do you work? I know in some couples and family sessions that I've had, sometimes it's hard, like people tend to like talk over each other. Do you notice that at all? Or like multiple people are talking? Oh yes, 100%. So a little, um, interruption here and there but it's all right so being the clinician it's let's um kind of set some ground rules okay right? if you notice it's happening a little more often it's all right we're gonna let so-and-so talk and then it's your turn right and especially in couples therapy and multiple people in the group it might be all right we're gonna acknowledge what you're saying and then we'll move on to the next person and kind of prevent that interruption piece from it. So kind of laying some of that groundwork before the session even starts or when you kind of first start doing family therapy through um, the telehealth platform. Um, how about, I know I, I've done group therapy in, in the Zoom meeting format. And so it does look pretty bunch style because obviously everybody is in their own um, locations at home. Yeah. Um, can you give us some tips on to how to facilitate the communication between the participants and so that it, they can kind of feel comfortable because that's such an important com component of group therapy is that group interaction between the participants um, for validation so that the other participants don't feel so um, alone and other participants can relate. Can you give us any tips on how to kind of facilitate that between um, members communication in session? Right, definitely. And I think um, as a clinician, it's my own anxiety at sometimes where I have to um, kind of check in with myself and wondering, okay, am I feeling like I'm talking too much? Am I feeling like they're not getting enough time to speak? Am I not talking 
X, Y, and Z. So um, really navigating what can we do to switch it up and kind of gauge the age that you're working with. Um, for instance, if I'm working with a family that has maybe teens or young children, uh, work on activities or exercises that get them up and about and you're still working in a therapeutic perspective of maybe um, family bonding, building trust, doing some teamwork here. Um, a couple things I like to do, especially kind of working with the home is maybe playing the game of like minefields where you blindfold your partner and have to work through an obstacle or do home trivia where you come up with like 10, 20 questions of the home and family members um, and maybe like a scavenger hunt type deal. But yeah. really, if you notice the um, dynamic is kind of off, it's all right, well, let's switch it up here and maybe engage in some fun while working on some therapeutic pieces. Yeah, so sometimes it's just kind of having some things like in your back pocket that you might need to engage, to, to use to help um, give them, like kind of get their wheels turning, get them moving and to kind of break things up a little bit. And so I like that idea of like doing a scavenger hunt. Um, I know one of the times I said, okay, let's, my group participants, they love their animals. So I was like, let's get our animals. Let's, I want to see your animals on camera. Let's, let's oh, talk yes. about our animals with each other and um, introduce us to your animals um, and even like a scavenger hunt so that you can kind of um, get them to kind of maybe move about a little bit and hopefully um, in a way that doesn't get the clinician who's on the other end like seasick or anything like that little motion sickness but um, kind of getting them engaged and to kind of get them more comfortable too with the feel and more talkative as well. Yeah. And um, to piggyback off of that, I really love doing something like that, especially in the initial sessions, just so they're more comfortable. They're showing me what's around the room. They're showing me their inst instruments, playing the guitar for me, just oh. so, hey, it's it's just, we're humans here. Yes. <laughs> right? You don't have to jump in and tell me your deep, dark secrets. Like, just tell me what about the poster or artwork on your wall. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I don't know about you, but one of the things I've noticed with my teens is like from doing telehealth in their bedroom, like I feel like they all have blackout curtains and it's all so dark and it might be two o'clock in the afternoon and I'm like, are we in a cave? Um, so especially when you're working with depressed clients, sometimes that's helpful to kind of really see like that's usually their, their most comfortable spot. And we talk about um, getting some light in and how all that darkness can kind of um, be counterproductive with um, depression. Have you seen that or what's your take on, on that part of it when you see some things that oh, are like definitely. maybe not healthy for their <laughs> mental health? Yeah, so I appreciate that part because we can kind of be introduced into the world a little more because of telehealth and we can see how they are living, what is surrounding them and how can we kind of modify that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and sometimes too, the telehealth um, can kind of give us an indication of um, where their mental health is at. Like if it's very disheveled in their, um, in their, in their space or in their room um, to kind of encourage, you know, sometimes when we have a clean space and a fresh start, we feel a little bit better inside. Um, I had one client who we've talked about before, like when she is depressed, her hygiene kind of goes down. Um, you know, but typically, you know, seeing her in session, you don't really get much of that report other than her self-report. So we were doing a telehealth call 
and she starts drinking out of her Brita pitcher, like the, the, the full pitcher, um, and like tilting it and drinking out of the actual filtration pitcher. I was like, where are your dishes? Um, and it was kind of an indication. She's like, I haven't been able to do dishes. Um, and that was like an indication with, for me to say like, wow, you know, you're really struggling, um, you know, so much so that you don't have any clean cups to drink out of. And you're just kind of opting for that, that Brita pitcher. Um, and in a sense, like I used that little bit of humor, like we, we laughed a little bit, um, but also kind of that seriousness of like, all right, let's, let's kind of focus in on like maybe your, your goal after this session is to start doing a couple dishes, but not overwhelming yourself. Um, so I, I think sometimes telehealth can give us some more indication of where their, their headspace is at by seeing that environment. If it's like overly cluttered, if they have stacks of paper, if there's clothes everywhere, if they're drinking out of uh, pitchers instead of cups, uh, it can be really telling for us. It can kind of give us an, a different um, insight into where clients are at and how they're feeling. Exactly. It really is a good segue into exploring that with them. Like what is going on here and kind of focusing on, all right, small goals. Yes. Around. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there have been, you know, I think so many of us were hesitant to doing telehealth. I know for me professionally, I had never done telehealth before the pandemic. Have you had you at that point? I actually have not, and I was kind of curious how I would take it, uh -huh. <laughs> just because I really do find it um, a personable piece to just be with the person face-to-face -face and connect in that way. Yeah, so I think it's it was something that we were kind of maybe all curious about, but maybe didn't delve into, and the pandemic kind of forced this piece on us, and maybe it was met with some hesitation and some concern, but I do feel like there's a lot of, if we're using REBT concepts, maybe our cognitive um, irrational thought was, I will never do telehealth because it's so, um, I, I won't really be able to understand my clients. It's, it's gonna be so hard and difficult. I would never do telehealth. So maybe that was a lot of our own as clinicians, our own um, irrational thought patterns when it came to telehealth, but um, maybe a lot of us had to do our own RABT interventions to open us up to be more accepting and open to this concept of telehealth. Yeah, definitely. And again, check in with your own thoughts as clinicians, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of that change um, in doing telehealth, there's been actually a lot of beautiful things that we've seen and really helpful things for our sessions to kind of see our clients in their own private environments or even the clients that have to do telehealth sessions from their car because they don't have like that private space at home. It kind of gives us like, oh, wow, you know, you don't really have that peaceful place to go and, and um, encourage and they but they feel some more um, ability to be alone and be quiet in their car. Have you seen that as well? Have you done telehealth from the car? Right. It's so funny you say that because I do have a number of people that meet in that setting. And again, you have to do what you have to do, different formats and meet, meet them where they're at. Meet them where they're at. Yeah. So it's especially helpful when they 
So then you can kind of understand if they're saying like, wow, I never, I don't have a, I don't have any space at home. I don't have a quiet place at home. You can kind of be, you know, give them some evidence to say, actually you do, because remember that time that we did telehealth from your car, you know, um, if that could be um, some Socratic thinking, kind of put that thought up to the jury in a sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, you, know, you can go to your car to get some peace, but um, so yeah, you can kind of, I think as us as clinicians, we can um, identify with some REBT interventions, as they, especially as it came to telehealth at the beginning of the pandemic, and also obviously for our clients as well. So that's going to just about wrap us, wrap us up here in talking about um, family therapy and telehealth and REBT. Is there any closing thoughts, any last um, thoughts that you had to say about what we talked about in the podcast today? Yeah. Well, again, thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, my immediate thought is I just want to give all the clinicians listening a shout out mm -hmm. because sometimes it's not easy and we have to kind of embrace the challenges, but we keep powering through and we definitely can benefit from checking in with our own worries and again, powering through here, right? Yes, absolutely. I think it's important for us clinicians to practice our self-care um, and reaching out to other clinicians to kind of talk about their experiences so that we oh, yeah. might have our own thoughts and, and feelings uh, be validated because this is a stressful time for, for many individuals, all individuals, I would say, and then add that piece for, for clinicians too, yeah. to kind of focus in on self-care and um, I like how, you, you know, we're here for you. So um, that's going to wrap us up for episode eight of Therapeutic Perspective. If you want more information or if you have some ideas for the show or if you want to be on the show, feel free to reach out to me at therapeuticperspectivepodcast at gmail.com. If you listen to our podcast and you would like to obtain continuing education credit hours, Please check out our website at therapeuticperspective.com to see if your state is eligible to receive NBCC continuing education credit hours. If your state does, you will need to go to therapeuticperspective.com and click on the show that you just listened to. From there, you will see three links to three online documents to complete. These include an attestation, quiz, and evaluation. Once we receive these documents and the continuing education credit hour fee set through our PayPal link on our website, we will send you your certificate of completion via email. If you need any help or support in the process, please email us at therapeuticperspectivepodcast at gmail.com.